Yes, indeedy. Welcome to the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 34, coming at you live and direct from the Vibe Junkie Studios in Oakland, California. And yeah, it's been a few weeks, little overdue. These are dark, dark times, but we're back and grateful for you. Indeedy. Episode 34 of the Upful Life Podcast is brought to you by Path to Panacea Virtual Summer Cooking Camps for children, teens. They've put together some fun and meaningful hands-on curriculum. Cooking for kids and teens this summer, teaching the junior chefs looking for a nourishing, engaging, and delicious summer camp activity from the comfort of your own home, check out Path to Panacea's virtual summer camp. Uh, Alicia, certified holistic nutritionist and one hell of a chef and an amazing educator and teacher. She's actually having her second class of the day as I'm recording this. Um, She's really excited about delivering this program to the youth The Virtual Summer Camp 2020 uh, offers a fun and safe environment for kids to express themselves confidently, learn new skills, connect with other campers, explore with all their senses in the kitchen. Uh, You can expect delicious summer memories. So if you got kids out there, any of my listeners got, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11... They got Kitchen Explorers for the youngins, and then they've got the Kitchen Confident, Kitchen Culture, Food Matters, ages 12 to 15. So some really sweet programs, pathtopanacea.com, and you can find out all about the virtual summer camp. Path to Panacea, y'all. Plenty women from Canada to Mexico 
see him coming and I hit it when he had to go. And we're back. Episode 34 coming at you. No, it's been a while. I want to apologize for the pause for the cause. It's been hard to nail down a pretty steady schedule here between the shelter at home and quarantining in the woods and everything that's happening with the ebb and flow of coronavirus and people's work situations, travel, even a trip to the supermarket, you know, is an event. So uh, I'm trying to figure out my flow and I appreciate everyone hanging uh, tight. Took me about almost an extra two weeks to get this together. I want to thank everyone who tuned in to episode 33 with Dave from Dopey Podcast. I mean, the response to that has been humbling and inspiring and empowering. And I want to thank everyone who listened, who commented, who reached out to me. Man, that was powerful shit. And uh, I guess it did indeed. If the numbers don't lie, it did hold some folks over for another week or two while I circled the proverbial wagons. Now, I got to say, these are dark dark troubling times and i'm at a loss for what is even appropriate with the podcast um i didn't want to put something out while the uh rebellion and the uprising and the awakening was literally on fire because i wanted to just be an ally and support the movement black lives matter and just you know be an ally And I didn't think that putting out a show about music or even addiction or whatever it was going to be was appropriate. I wanted it to be pertinent to what uh, we're collectively living through in the United States and society right now with regard to the aftermath of yet another police murder of a person of color, several actually, and more and more coming to light as uh, the gloves come off, the Shades come down, if you will, and uh, we're really seeing the dark, disturbing underbelly of Babylon. And it was always there, and we always knew it, but I was having too good of a time, I guess. And uh, now the time has come for me to, you know, be an active member of the movement. And I'm going to use this podcast in such a way, it's not going to be political, but it is going to be righteous, and it is going to... uh, have some difficult conversations, some uncomfortable conversations. You're going to hear me, uh, you know, maybe not totally sure of myself and asking some maybe naive questions or misguided questions, but that's the conversations we need to have. I'm having them in my real life, as I know so many of us are, and we're also going to be having them on this podcast because I like this reflection, excuse me, this podcast to be a reflection of how we're living, what we're living. It can't just be the festival fun and the dance parties and the funk and the grooves and the hip-hop and uh, the way-back machine. There's work to do right now, and I'm inclined to put my energy in that direction. So I'm going to keep writing about music. I've got a couple sweet projects in the pipeline that I'm going to keep you hip to, but uh, this, this is about what we're living through. And I'm going to do my best to get guests and interviews and conversations on this show that reflect that reality and as I state in the interview today with Kim Dawson I built my whole shit on black culture 
from fashion to music to reading, literature, you know, ideas, and mostly just music. Music culture and its surrounds define me personally, professionally, spiritually, and that's rooted in the contributions that black people made exclusively. And, you know, in a lot of ways, we've lost sight of that. Uh, and at least some of us have. And, and that's been communicated to me in myriad ways. Therefore, I am dedicating my energy towards uh, a better world, a better culture, educating people on the inherent biases that are learned and in turn unlearned. We're going to hear from Kim about microaggressions. We're going to hear from Kim just really deep stuff. So I'm going to introduce her in a second, but I just wanted to take a moment and speak directly to the audience and uh, just say thank you. Thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for being interested in learning, living, loving along the way. You know, I'm listening to a lot of Gil Scott Heron these days, you know, and his message is just really resonating. So you heard a couple tracks from Gil right now. You're hearing Home is Where the Hatred Is song that's always been really profound to me and speaking of hatred the division in this company in this country politically culturally socially is so deep rooted and so divisive and so angry and full of hatred and i'm seeing it on both sides but really i'm primarily seeing it on one side and um i can't look the other way anymore and i want to rally around the family So that's what this is about, this episode, and probably the next few. And hopefully it's just going to be a theme in this program moving forward, is is just learning and unlearning and rebuilding, rebirthing. Because we can get past this, I'm certain we can. But it's going to be a long, hard road. And gone are the days when we can just pretend that it's all good, not ruffle any feathers, and just you know, enjoy the jams, as I've been told so many times. So with that, I'm going to cue up some Kim Dawson and introduce guest on episode 34. Right, Joel. You're hearing Kim Dawson singing with Crushed Velvet and the Velveteers, which is on Vintage League Music with Alan Evans at the helm. You'll hear about that in our interview. Kim Dawson was kind enough to rap with me for an hour and a half the other day about really all the things. A little bit about music. She's obviously worked with a ton of folks that you've heard on this show and heard about on this show. Uh, She's a part of the Color Red family out there in Colorado, former member of Pimps of Joy Time. She's on this track, Crushed Velvet and the Velveteers, and she's a major part of Matador Soul Sounds. We heard Eddie Roberts on the show uh, last year. That's his crew with Alan Evans and a number of others. 
So she discusses that group a bit. And she's got her own thing, Kim Dawson. You heard a track uh, with Will Blades. I'm going to play a little bit of that momentarily. Um, but Kim is just an amazing singer. I've been a fan of hers going back to the Pimps of Joy time days, but really been paying keen attention over the past few years. Um, also did some work with her husband, Mike Tallman, I talked about on the podcast last time with help from my friend's poster. So, yeah, loosely connected with Kim for a while. And, you know, she describes her, on her bio, I should say, describes her eclectic mix of R&B, neo-soul, funk, with a love-laced passion for all things jazz. And I think you can really hear that in her vocal. She checks Stevie Wonder and Sarah Vaughn, Karen Carpenter. Of course, she talks about Nina Simone in the interview. And she's worked with everyone from the late Bernie Worrell to Ivan Neville, George Porter Jr., teaches in denver at swallow hill music in the past at the national theater conservatory kent denver school well-rounded resume but it's really about her voice and her style and how she carries it and you're going to hear all about that um, with regard to kim dawson and of course a lot about race racism her experience her black american experience in the music scene, in her life growing up, all the way up to the here and now in Denver, Colorado. So I do want to advise that, unfortunately, there's a strange click in the conversation that's kind of annoying, and I've spent a great deal of time trying to scrub it, if you will. Like, I just did whatever I could. I'm not a professional producer. I'm not a tech guy. So... I hope you all can bear with it. She gave such an amazing, raw, emotional, beautiful, educational, and enlightening conversation, interview, powwow, whatever you want to call it, that I wasn't inclined to try again. I know some podcasts have had to re-record things, and I'm sure that's going to happen to me. And so on the fence with this one, so I hope that you all can bear with a little bit of clickage. It's not crazy, but it can be a bit annoying. I did my very best to remove it. Uh, the best I could. So with that, I encourage you to listen to this interview with Kim Dawson. It's really real. It's really raw, but it's also sweet and beautiful and hopeful. She's a compassionate and really just wonderful uh, energy in the way that she communicated these often painful and uncomfortable memories and experiences but did so with uh, very gracefully and uh, in a way that i was inclined to really meet her there and i hope you all can do the same because we need to be having these conversations and i'm not ashamed to say that i learned a lot about the work that i have to do just by talking with kim dawson for an hour and a half so with that i'm gonna play out a little bit of this track called try which is Kim Dawson uh, and Will Blades on the Oregon Will, of course. Another amazing interview on the Up for Life podcast. So you can see we're developing a little crew, a little family here on the pod that coincides with some of the movers and shakers doing the damn thing in the music scene. And we're just going to pivot our attention and our energy into matters maybe of a bit greater importance. So with that, here's Try, Kim Dawson with Will Blades and We'll have a conversation with Miss Kim Dawson herself on episode 34 of the Upful Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. Yes, indeedy. Mm-hmm. 
Kim. This is B. Getz. I wanted to uh, welcome you to the Up Full Life podcast. I've been interested in speaking to you for some time, and I'm really grateful that you've made the time today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm also doing well. You know, these are obviously crazy times, and every day yeah. seems like there's something new. And uh, yeah. that said, I'm grateful for my health and, uh, you know, work and our music community, et cetera. Yeah, I think um, when we have a lot of time, this this time <laughs> um, has given us all a lot of time to reflect, and sometimes that reflection can send you kind of down a dark path because you get frustrated about things you can't do or just the state of the world and all that. And so it's good to kind of remind yourself, hey, I'm grateful for these things, you know. Definitely. Um, well said. And I think it's important that we are able to, you know, focus on the things that do bring us joy, happiness, community, when we're walking through the darkness, whether it's individually or collectively. And and music, yeah. obviously, is what brings us together. It's how I know you. And yeah. I've become a fan of yours for many years, dating back to several projects. But I wanted to start with your most recent release, which I, my fiancé and I are a huge fan of the track. You did it with Vintage League Music Crush. Velvet and the Velveteers. Did I get that right? Crushed, vel crushed, crushed velvet, velvet and the Velveteers. Yeah. Got it. All right. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get it. And uh, I just wanted to hear about how you know you came to that project and what it means to you, and maybe where it might be going in the future. Yeah. Um. And that that is totally Alan's project. Um. He's kind of notorious for starting lots of projects. Like I don't know how many bands that man has started through the years. Um. But this, this is his most recent one that kind of came about because of not being able, you know, bands not being able to record together, and he found a way to do it where we could all record our parts and, um, and, and still have it sound really fresh um, and almost like we played it together in the studio, you know. Um, so yeah, he had these ideas, because, I mean, I think a lot of people don't know Alan Evans. He's a drummer, but he also plays guitar, and he plays a little bass, and plays a little keys. He's a very proficient um, as a musician just in general and so um, he sent me this track and was like hey I thought you would sound really good on this um, and then you know we're going to be doing some more work together as well because he has he has this vision for this band and um, putting out a whole album that's going to have a lot of guests that are his friends that he's worked with through the years in different capacities and um, but yeah this one was kind of a no-brainer I heard it and I was like yep I can do this. <laughs> so, um, I think I, I think I maybe wrote all the lyrics and the melody. I mean, it, it was really quick, maybe an hour that it kind of came together because it just seemed very obvious, like what it should be about. I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes you really do just get that like divine inspiration and sometimes you sit for a long time with a song. This one was definitely more divine inspiration. And, uh, yeah, it's just a fun soul track, man. It was it was fun to sing on for sure, and good to good to kind of let my my inner soul goddess out. <laughs> yeah, you certainly um, did. Uh, and um, yeah, love. So, yeah, it was fun. I I don't know. I'm not sure when the entire album's going to be out. I feel like maybe the end of the year. Um, I have to check with Alan on that, but um, but I'm. I know that there will be a full album, and I have I will be on a few more tracks on it. So yeah, 
That's great news. And I really love the aesthetic of that sound, that soul sound. I just think it's a, it's got that throwback vibe, but it's, it's still of the now. And, and right. I love it. So we look forward to hearing more of that. And obviously, it's not the first time you've worked with Alan. I'm a huge fan of the Matador Soul Sounds. And yeah. I, was, I was thinking about that. You know, you have the, the, I guess, say, privilege of being able to record for, you know, two of the, you know, finest labels doing it these days in Vintage League <laughs> with Alan. And then, of course, Alan's with you and Matador Soul Sounds. That's on Color Red, where you released your... Yes. Your most recent or track try with Will Blades. So, yes. you know, maybe just explore what it's like to be a major cog in these these sort of uh, they're they're just they're throwbacks, but they're also really you know of the now. Like I said, and and you're you're an important part of that, and you contribute to a lot of the projects. So I just wanted to maybe hear a little bit about you know Matador and making music for Color Red as well. Sure. Um... Well, I think usually when you have something, a, a project that involves people like Alan Evans and, and Eddie Roberts, there's going to be a throwback vibe because they do that thing really well. And they are also um, kind of are masters of like that old school sound, you know? Yeah, definitely. Uh, old, school, old school soul sound, I should say. Um, and so I just happen to have a good relationship with those guys. I've sung with New Master Sounds many times and recorded on an album of theirs. Oh, gosh. Several years ago. The Therapy album was the one that I was on. Um, and so they both know how I work. And um, I, I guess it's good that I that they like me so that they <laughs> when they have, they have stuff that they need somebody to sing on, they call me, which is nice. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've been, I've been a freelance musician for so many years, um, that I think I kind of became this kind of like that person that people call when they know they just need to take something to the next level. I'm, I'm reliable, I guess is a good way to put it. <laughs> um, and, um, and that's good. I mean, I'm glad that I have that reputation, um, because I, I you know, I just want to make good music and I think that that is what, uh, comes through. Um, but also why maybe I get uh, called for the things that are, like, old school, like Color Edge putting out and, like, Vintage League. Because, for me, I just I just want to make good music. I don't really have another agenda to it. Um, you know, there's pop stars that want to do certain things. And there's, you know, I mean, everybody has their own little way of putting, them, putting their music out there and their own reasons for doing it. And I just, I don't know, I like to sing. And <laughs> I want to out make good music singing you know um that's that's a really dumb way to put that but <laughs> that's that's kind of how i feel about it um but yeah color red um started as um eddie's idea to kind of get his friends he wanted to have a central place to for his, for people coming through denver to record you know maybe if they're in town um doing a show and like oh also you can record some tracks or record a full album if you want to stay a little longer come in early we have a central place and it's a very simple setup, small studio. Um, he records pretty old school style, but and to tape, you know. Um, and I think that that authenticity comes through because you don't have a ton of bells and whistles. Like you just kind of go in and play, and it's cool. <laughs> it's, um, and so yeah, being part of that um, label is great. And then Matador, man, that band is just pretty killer. It's full of oh, yeah. really talented musicians, and 
you know, I get to sing with Adrienne in there. And, and actually, she and I hadn't ever sung together before this project. We had definitely been on the same bills. Our bands had played, you know, when I was in Pimps of Joy Time, we did a couple of shows with Orgone. Um, but we hadn't ev- actually ever sung together. But I just knew it was going to work. And then, yeah, it's, it's really easy to sing with her, and we have a really good vibe, so... I think that comes across, and you know, Kevin Scott on bass on that um, project is—he's kind of. There's not a lot of bass players that can do what Kevin does. He is—he is a wonderful musician, um, and Christie's um, on organ is also just those Southern boys, man. There's something in the water down there. I don't know. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, the project's super fun, and. Um, Hopefully we get to do it again soon. It kind of, we kind of took a break a lot because this past year was Soul Live's 20th anniversary, I think, and then also New Master Sound's 20th. Right. So they ended up, you know, doing a lot of touring around that. Um, but hopefully, you know, hopefully we'll be able to do something cool again soon. I mean, I think our last big venture was playing Fuji Rock <laughs> in July. Which is not a bad last gig. That festival is amazing. Um, yeah. In Japan. So, what a yeah. treat. I know. It was awesome. I love Japan. I will always, if they, yeah, anytime I get the chance to go once the world opens back up again. <laughs> well, they definitely love that style of music over there. And uh, I'm sure they would be looking. I, we had Eddie on the podcast. We've had a, a lot of color red. Eddie and Leah. And I remember Eddie mentioned that that was, uh, that was coming down the pike for for Matador when we spoke. And I'm a huge fan of Matador. I think it's a really unique band in the scene. And I kind of wanted to just pivot to talking about, you know, being a front woman or front women of a band like that. It's like a super group, you know, you just reeled off a bunch of really, you know, accomplished and respected and admired musicians and they're men. And two women of color fronting this band to an audience that I, I would wager is more often than not primarily white. So I was, you know, one of the reasons that I asked to speak with you is because I've been paying attention to your voice in the community with regard to current events and the awakening and protests and uprisings of late. And, and I want to kind of pivot the conversation to a little bit more topical, serious, and pertinent to the now. Uh, that said, just just the experience of of two women of color fronting a band like that to an audience like ours. Um. Yeah. Well, I mean, not the first time I've been, you know, in that one, situation. Right. Yeah. I because I think so. My first foray into kind of the jam world was singing with the Motet. And okay. Um. And I was the only person of color on that stage, you know, with them, as well as the only woman most of the time when they were, when I was playing with them, Um, which is, I mean, is also not uncommon. The music industry is largely dominated by male, um, by a male presence. Um, That's regardless of genre or scene. Um, It is, there's a lot of dudes that play insurance, you know. Um, Yep. (laughs) True story. But, uh, so being the only female is not new, won't ever be, you know, an, a, a unique experience. Um, but yeah, I did notice, it was interesting, I noticed the crowd, and it, um, 
I didn't expect for it to be as white, <laughs> you know, because I guess I just, in my mind, you know, you're playing funk and soul music, and, you know, that, to me, that audience was always black, you know, when I grew up listening to, you know, or my parents are musicians as well, and so, you know, I got a really early education in old school, you know, you know, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Aretha Franklin, and Shaka Khan, and, um, you know, all these greats, that's what I grew up listening to, um, as well as all the church music, um, so it, it never crossed my mind that kind of the demographic kind of shifted, and it might just be because, um, like, in the jam world, like, hippies, if I can use that term, like, they, they go out and see live music probably more than anybody at all, you know, than in more, more, more regularly than any other demographic, um, which I'm very appreciative of, but it was definitely surprising, and um, sometimes, I mean, so that side of it is very positive, like, I love that, I love anybody that goes out to see live music regularly, thank you, thank you, thank you to all who do, <laughs> I mean, obviously, I wouldn't have a job, um, but yeah, it is, it can be, um, it can feel a little a little lonely and also like people don't really understand why the music sounds that way it does or what 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 people what black people put into it um, that makes it what it is. I think um, there's a tendency to kind of remove the heritage from the music yes. or the culture from the music, um, which is which does the music a disservice. Um, I. And that's the part that can be hard to reconcile when you're up there, you know, people are like, oh, my, man, you know, being with such passion and soul. And I'm like, uh, yeah, but it's also because, <laughs> you know, I'm putting the history and my, my, my own experience on that stage every single time I get up there, you know. Um, and that's why it sounds the way it does. You know, Billie Holiday sounded the way she did because of what she went through. And... Um, Stevie Wonder sounds the way he does because of what he's been through, and you can't really take that away from the music, I don't think. Um, um, yeah, and that's... Otherwise, you're just kind of... I just feel like you, you need to respect that side of it, um, you know. Um, and that's why I think this is good for people to be able to have time to reflect on it because... You know, this music doesn't exist without the people that created it, and those people that created it um, went through a very specific, and are going through. The black people in this country have gone through <laughs> some shit, if I may say that. <laughs> yeah, please do. Um, I was like, I don't know if I can swear, but... <laughs> yep, no but, FCC uh, here. Yeah, all right, cool. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's... And that's and that's important to note because I think one of the issues in this country is that we've kind of just tried to cover up a lot of the injustices for so long. Like, oh, it'll go away if we stop talking about it, or people are going to get over it if you don't talk about it, or we don't want to reopen old wounds, not realizing that these wounds never closed. And there hasn't ever been, like, an apology or... Um, recognition, really, of the atrocities of slavery or um, the slaughter of the Native American people 
in this country. I mean, I bring them up because I feel like we don't talk them about them enough either. Um, <laughs> I agree. Uh, it's uh, yeah, that's and that's one of the greatest injustices um, of American of yeah in America is just like the mistreatment and erasure of uh, the native of the indigenous people in this country. Um, but we'll. I will let them speak for themselves. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, it's erasing the black experience from black music, I think, is, is, uh, is a hard part for me sometimes. Um, I, and it's hard because, you know, you don't want to get up there and give a history, history lesson every single time you sing necessarily. But, um, but I think it's important to note and, and to remember that that's why um, music sounds the way that it does. That's why the, the artists played the way they did. That's why um, those singers sounded that way. You know, I feel um, the anguish, you know, and the pain in every note, as well as like joy. Um, I've been I've been kind of delving back into like Nina Simone's catalog, and it's amazing how much of it is still relevant. Um, she kind of took a, a lead and. And specifically started writing about what was going on in the country and how she felt about it at the time. And, you know, musicians have always done that. That's, again, regardless of genre or whatever, we've always talked about the times. And um, I think it's important to, uh, yeah, I just think it's important to remember that stuff. And, and again, it's, I'm not saying that I have had Obviously, I haven't had, or not obviously, I haven't had KKK burning crosses on my lawn or anything, but um, I've definitely dealt with racism in my life, and um, it's something that my husband and I have talked about a lot. Um, you know, he's another musician who is not oblivious to <laughs> what's going on in the world or what has been going on in the world, um, but there are some things that just being in a relationship with me, he says, has opened his eyes a lot to um, things that are easy to miss in society, you know, microaggressions that I deal with in a day um, or just, yeah, just how, what people really think about people of color. And, um, I mean, I, you, you can have him on and talk to him like, about his personal yeah. elevation. All right, we plan to. Repetition. We've already talked about it, for sure. <laughs> Good. Um, but I do know that it it was important for me to have that talk with him and to say, like, you have to understand like what I go through in a day. And a friend of mine put it really, um, really plainly. And I, I, I like the way she said it. It's um, every day that we walk out of the house, uh, I am, you know, every day that I walk out of the house, I am a, immediately considered by society as a representative of like every black woman on the planet. And so everything that I do is seen under this guy's, this, this lens of, like, I'm representing my race every single time. And, and until white people have that same kind of experience, you can't, it's going to be hard to relate. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, um, because you're not asked to do that. You know? Um, you're not asked, but we, but we are. And, it gets exhausting. It gets heavy because sometimes, yeah, I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid, I was like, I just want to, like, live my life. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be seen as, 
anything besides just Kim. But I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten much more um, proud of my own blackness and not really... Um, and wanting to be seen as, as a black woman, not just... And not because, like, I... Not because I want to be seen as different. I mean, I am different, obviously, than the majority. I mean, I live in Colorado. I'm constantly bombarded with <laughs> the, the reminder right. that I am not like people. I mean, Colorado is pretty white. So, um, But I think that... Um, I have grown into my blackness in a way because I think I just used to try to assimilate and try to like prove to people um, I'm not, oh, I'm not like whatever stereotype you hold. Uh, I'm going to prove to them that like I'm one of the good ones, whatever. It sounds terrible to say now, say that out loud, but I think it was also just a survival thing. You know, I was around a lot of whiteness and just wanted to be seen as safe and and not have to explain things sometimes. Um, but that then I sucks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think it's very common. Oh man, yeah, I'm just saying that to be in that prism just every moment of your waking day, yeah. it just sucks. And uh, you know, you're right. I, I I can't really identify with it. I don't know what that is, but I'm 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 grateful that you're you know detailing it so personally. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt sure. you. No, no, you're good. You're, I mean, that's I, it's good to say that it sucks. Because, like, saying that is good for, I mean, I think people need to realize, yes, that does suck. And not because I'm trying to be a victim, but just, like, recognizing that these things exist in society. And, like, we need to stop doing that. We need to stop putting kids that grew up like me, you know, in through that kind of situation. Like, a lot of, I, I think a lot of times people are like, oh, my gosh, you came through that so strong and you know, some people that may have said some stupid stuff to you, like, just don't, don't even think about them. It's like, no, the problem is that they <laughs> do these things. Right. And that they treated me this way. Like, yes, thank you that, you know, yay, Jackie Robinson, you know, with, he withstood a whole bunch of hatred. What a good guy. Like, no, the problem is the hatred. You know, like, so let's first fix that so that nobody else has to deal with that. And I think we tend to not want to address the problem and instead just want people to come out on the other side better. Um, but I think people are tired of that. And I, I know we're seeing that, you know, the black people are tired of <laughs> having to put up with certain things and instead want the problem fixed. And I think that, that that's great. I think it's about time. It's, about time. Um, I would have to agree that with, with it being about time and wow. I mean, you just, your last five, seven minutes is precisely why I called you. Just <laughs> the way you articulated that in a language that all of us can easily uh, at least comprehend, if not like personally understand. And, and that's really what I wanted to explore. And there's so much to unpack in, in, your, in your answer there that, yeah. you know, the, the, the idea of removing the heritage and black culture from the music is so applicable to our particular music community. And I don't think yeah. that it's intentional, at least most of the time, but there just been so many, you know, people, mostly white folks, 
jam band kids, hippies, whatever you want to call us, whose uh, experiences and introduction to funk or soul, you know, is on jam cruise or at Bonnaroo. Mm -hmm. They're not being explained Earth, Wind and Fire records from their parents or hearing the melodies first in the church. And therefore, like, they're never attached to um, maybe where it came from. And then that mm -hmm. conditions them to, to say or feel the way where it's just like they don't want to understand the, the struggle or the culture. It doesn't necessarily maybe born out of prejudice or racism. It's just uh, naivety, ignorance. But that fosters. And uh, I'm, I'm here to say, like, we're not teaching them. I'm not. You know, you are. The artists are, you know. Even the white artists, the Eddie Roberts of the world, you know, who play black music are doing their best to teach and inform and show where it came from. But we're not really passing that down generation to generation. And I'm lucky I had a mom that, you know, loved Aretha, loved Nina, and made sure I knew where this shit came from. But she was the exception, not the rule, especially in my little right. suburban town in New Jersey. <laughs> right. and oh, no, I was going to say, that actually reminded me, speaking of Jam Cruise, I was on on there one year. It was Snarky Puppy's first year on the boat. And um, and I remember I had done, oh gosh, I can't remember which festival, but I was singing with Kyle Hollingsworth's band, um, not String Cheese, but his, his um, solo project, and they had asked him to do a Motown set. And I sang on it like a lot. <laughs> um, I mean, I love Kyle. He's not really a Motown singer. He was like, I need you to, you know, help, help round this out. I'm like, sure, I can do this. Um, but some lady that, um, a fan had approached me on Jan Cruz saying that that was the first time she heard me sing and it was great. And she learned about Stevie Wonder because of that, because I sang a few Stevie Wonder songs on there. And I'm like, this is a grown one. You know, she's, you know, in her late forties, maybe. Um, wasn't, you know, a 12 year old kid that's just like, who's Stevie Wonder, you know? <laughs> um, and it was just interesting to me that she hadn't heard of him. And while I'm glad, hey, if you discover, if I help you discover the greatness that is Stevie Wonder, good, because everybody should know <laughs> about his music. Um, but yeah, it just kind of shocked me that she, because we had this small, short conversation. She's like, you know, I've been a music fan for years and like I've never really heard about him. I'm like, how? And then she started saying, like, but I'd heard these songs because people cover See You Wonder all the time, right? Um, she never really attached it to who it came from. And I'm thinking, how did that happen, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, it seems crazy to me that that happens, but it does. And, um, and I think sometimes you kind of attribute whatever cover to that band. You know, there are people that don't know that See Wonder wrote uh, higher ground. They just know it as a, you know, red hot chili pepper. Right. Song, you know. Um, yeah. Or, or that a lot of the blues. St I mean, Grateful Dead covered black blues artists all the time. Oh yeah, they had Etta James on stage with them. You know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I mean, and I don't. I I think you'd be hard pressed to find, you know, any major band or musician that didn't have a reverence for black American music. The entire British invasion. Yep. You know, they were all doing. Black American music, like they and they would, they said it. You know, they're like, yeah, we we love this sound, um, and it, but somehow through the years, the people that created that sound got taken away. You know, 
removed from it in a way. And again, I like you said, I don't think it's intentional. I don't think anybody was like, I mean, maybe it was. I don't know. Probably some conspiracy theorist somewhere. I'm, I'm sure <laughs> has, maybe has theory, it could be. It could have been, you know, in its inception. Like, let's separate the two. But I'm just saying the average person, that woman that you met on Jam Cruise or the fictitious person I just made up about it, it that person might not necessarily, you know, be adhering to some sort of conspiratorial, like, let's separate the culture from the music. But over time, it happens. And it, it, you, that's a great example you brought up with that that woman not knowing Stevie Wonder. And I, I kind of wanted to just explore what you just described and not relative to Kyle Hollingsworth or anyone specific, but when like, cause I, I, from my perspective, I went, I'm not a huge string cheese fan, but I love Halloween. I go every year um, mm-hmm. and they do their Halloween costume set. And they did uh, with like a Halloween theme. They did one year called ghoul train, which was like a play on soul train. And it was, you know, I'm sure the musicianship was great. And again, I'm not the type of person that can't miss string cheese so uh i wasn't inclined to give them a pass in the beginning but uh you know i'm a white dude and i that felt offensive it was like Mm. disingenuous bastardization of you know i don't need to tell you how important and crucial soul train is to the culture and the story and it just felt wrong so i'm and and i'm and they had like the jizza from wu-tang as don cornelius i mean i'm not gonna hate i'm just saying it bothered me um, yeah. how do you feel when, even when it's a friend or, uh, somebody that you happen to like, when, when like a white musician asks you to validate their performance of black music, they, is, do, are you, is, is that a sign of respect? Wow. That, that they want me or is it like, okay, I'm being in essence, like drafted to validate or make this okay. Um, how, how do you receive that? And then how do you and then in turn perform the music? Is it defiantly or are you, I just am trying to understand how, how that feels, if you understand what I'm asking. I, yeah, I think so. You kind of, you're asking kind of when we're, when we're put in a position to kind of help validate the, the, the soul or the funkiness or like whatever they're trying. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, that is a deep question. I will say I don't think that I have necessarily been put in a position to um, like that, you know, like the you know, being the Don Cornelius or being um, like nobody's asked me to pick out my afros to look more like right. Trevor Whitney or something. I, I actually haven't had that. Um, thankfully, I probably would not respond well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, because I think what starts to happen is that what I see happening more is that um, our images are used. Um, for example, um, a lot of festival posters or um, event posters or images, they'll have very often like a silhouette of yes. a woman, a black woman with an afro, right? And then you'll look at the lineup, and not only are there not usually women on there, there's almost never black women. Yet, there's this, like, there's this need to use the image of specifically black women to, uh, to kind of help validate this is going to be soulful, this is going to be funky, right? Um, and 
that actually is what I've experienced more. Um, and that's, that bothers me because it's like, okay, so you want to use our sound, use our image <laughs> to make sure people know that you're funky but not actually hire us, you know. Um, and I think it happens in all, in all genres. Um, there's this, uh, <laughs> there's this, there's a little bit of a uh, glorification of white women who sound black more than there is appreciation of the black women who are also doing that thing, you know. Um, sure. So we kind of we kind of get erased, honestly. I mean, think about the last festivals where you have seen black women up there doing the thing. I didn't, you know, it, it doesn't happen that often, um, which is why I then in turn get confused for whatever other black woman that they last saw on stage. Speaking of Adrian, people mix us up all the time, which is hilarious because we don't, Look alike. I, she's a gorgeous. I'm not saying this because look nor sound. Yeah, yeah, right. We don't have. We don't even move the way same way on stage. Um, that actually happened in Pimps of Joy time a lot too. So um, the woman who um, who left the band and then I came in and uh, took her spot. She was also black, and Cole is super talented, very gorgeous, completely different body type, completely. <laughs> You know, like, we don't sound alike, we don't look alike, and people would often be like, hey, Cole, coming up to me, like, uh, no. Or like, you really changed your hair. Like, yeah, I'm a whole different person. <laughs> you know, like, it's, Yikes. you know, it's like we're interchangeable, and um, and it's just odd to me. Like, I actually had to convince somebody, like, you sang with Oregon, right? I was like, no. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. I, I promise I know what bands I sing with. <laughs> um, like I swear I saw you. You were with them for a while. No, nope. But good for you recognizing that they had women with afros that sang with them. Um, but yeah, so for me, that's that's the thing that happens more often. And I wish that people would be like deliberate in um, hey, if you're going to use this image, like you better hire some black women, and not to like not because you're going to use our image, but because like if that's going to be the soul of your event or the soul of your festival, like, cool, then have them be there. Right, be about you know? it, right. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and again, I, I, I don't think that that's just the jam community. Um, I mean, you see that in pop music, too. Oh, of course. Um, as, as talented as Christina Aguilera is, like, you know, part of the draw to her is that she sounded black. Yeah, you know. Amy Winehouse, Joss Stone, Amy the list Winehouse. goes on. Yep, 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 yep. Um, uh, so, but yeah, there are people out there, like, you know, people know those people's names. However, I would say outside of most black households, um, people don't know Angie Stone. They don't know uh, Jill Scott in the same way. And, uh, I mean, I think people know Erica Badu-ish. You know, she's, right. she's been, I think she's probably more mainstream than the other two, but like, there's no reason that people shouldn't know all of those other women who are still doing that and doing it well. Um, yeah, it's, it's just interesting how that, how that shift happens. We glorify them sounding like, but not the people who are that, you know. Um, Again, it's the culture stripped from it. It's the experience stripped from it. I actually like Amy 
but uh, or enjoyed her music quite a bit. Sure, but I'm just saying course. that the remove, removing the struggle and the heritage and the culture when you talk about people like an Angie Stone and her life, a really incredible artist, you know, with D'Angelo, they have a child, so I'm really familiar with her, and 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 right, right. so I know what's behind her voice, you know. And and mm-hmm. and Jill Scott, I'm from Philly. I remember when the Roots yeah. used to bring her up at the Five Spot on Tuesday nights when I was like getting into right. the fake ID again, like oh, I'm you know, so jealous. You got to see that. <laughs> oh, dude, <laughs> oh, that made me. You know, <laughs> Tuesday nights at the oh. Five Spot. It was a women's hip hop night hosted by oh, the roots man. and that's where jill came of age but uh, we, we can talk about that sometime too i mean yes, that that said <laughs> you know it's like it's it's you you really brought up such really important points that um that people need to hear and like discuss further and that, mm-hmm. I, that's really why i was anxious to have you on because it's not just what you say and what, what you know i ask you but how people who are a fan of your music or maybe like my show and hear this conversation and it sparks ideas or emotions inside of them that they, they can't suppress. Cause I think that that's yeah. what's gone on for a long time. Like you said, just don't want to like ruffle feathers and like keep the peace and all that. And we off that, like it's not possible anymore in my opinion right. and, and a lot of folks opinions. Right. And, and this is, you know, been communicated to me specifically. Uh, I want to, you've referenced Adrian a few times and she made a post that early June, dear white friend. It was mm-hmm. so potent. Like I had to sit with it. I've read it several times, but she ended it with something. And I might, it was like a uh, white people. You have the louder microphone time to use it friend. Yeah. Right. Something to that effect. And, and, and that resonated with me like, okay, I've been, I've built my whole shit from the big collars and bell bottoms to the black music. It it's all comes from that culture. So Absolutely. I can't just enjoy my life in an Epicurean fashion, you know, all the food and drink and women and wine and music and not uh, be aware of the struggle and not conscious to it and, mm-hmm. and, and, and active in making a difference. Like I just, that, that's what that meant to me. And that also coupled with another person obviously very close to you, your husband, Mike, mm-hmm. he went through a process with uh, a, a music company, uh, I guess yes. it was equipment, <laughs> equipment brand. I'm not going to, yeah. I don't want to mess with legal stuff, but he right, approached right. them publicly, um, very transparently about where they were donating their money and uh, where the, the consumer support was going. And it was a really, really eye-opening exercise, not only Mike's bravery and how he articulated how he felt and and what his goals were, but the way the music community, like more like the, the gearhead side, if you will, uh, reacted to that situation. There was so much to learn from both of those, from Adrian's post and how people responded and how it made me feel. And then watching your husband basically take on a company because he was dismayed at their, uh, you know, donations and practices. And, and those, those instances were so, uh, important just in a nutshell to, you know, why we're having this conversation. Yeah. And I, I think, um, yes, you have the louder microphones. Changes happen when everybody gets involved. Like, you know, even if you go back to civil rights, movement, which actually wasn't that long ago, I like to remind people, Um, but it happened because a lot of people came together for change, like the change happened not just because black people were speaking for themselves, because whenever they do, people don't listen, 
you know, because I, I just, it comes up all the time, like, well, what about black on black crime? Nobody's doing anything about that. It's not true. People in Chicago, because they always want to mention Chicago, people in Chicago have been trying to get, have been trying to fix the ills of that city and, like, and the crime in that city. It's just that it doesn't get televised. Um, but I do think you are doing, I will say you are doing something very good in that you are using your platform to have to allow for um, using your microphone to allow for black people to speak for themselves. There is a difference in speaking for somebody and speaking with somebody. Um, and I think you have this obvious, you know, ability to be able to bring people on your show and actually give their firsthand experiences, which is great. So yeah, keep doing that and you know, amplify our voices. You know. Um, and then, yeah, be careful where you put your money. <laughs> um, that's that's another thing that talks money. Um, and if we want to make some massive changes, that's going to be a big way to do it. Um, I <laughs> I think yeah, I, I I see the people like waking up and being because I wouldn't think that, especially given your background, you you would ever think of yourself as having any biases in a way that would be detrimental to anybody. And I, you know, having met you, like, I wouldn't ever be like, oh, you know, he's like probably a closet racist or anything. Like, I, that's not, and I, and I think there's a fear that people will be seen that way. But I, I do, I do think being able to confront um, right now, to shine a light on the inequities and, and that have been, that it just exists in like the complacency that has existed in our society for so long is is good for people to recognize that and be like, oh, we need to we need to fix this, you know. Gone on too long, so I'm glad people are waking up. I'm glad people are listening. Keep doing it um, and help us, because I mean, honestly, it's exhausting sometimes. <laughs> Explaining things can be exhausting. Um, not being believed can be exhausting. It's exhausting that in 2020 there are people that still don't want us to, don't, don't want black people to thrive. Like, that's, that's crazy to me, you know, that that's a reality. Um, um, in, this, in this day and age, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that's, and that's, and that can get really depressing. And, and so reminding, you know, society, like, hey, we're better than this. And, and, uh, and changing things is important. I, um, I was reminded by my parents recently, um, because I think a lot of people, like, oh, these things happened in the past, you know, redlining, all the things. Like, it's, A, it's not that long ago. My parents lived in segregated communities in Oklahoma. Um, my mom was bused. Uh, they closed her junior high and bused her and her sister. Um, I think her brothers were in college by this time. Um, uh, bused them to the white uh, middle school, junior high, sorry, um, and she experienced, yeah, grown white folks screaming at her as she, you know, entering in, in, you know, the, like, that's, that's how real it is. Like, my parents went through this, had to go to, you know, drink from colored water fountains and had to go through the back entrance of a store because they weren't allowed to be, you know, go through, go through the front or they had, couldn't go to certain stores or whatever. Like, that's, that's how recent that was. My parents are not, like, 80 years old. <laughs> They're in their 60s. Um, and so the wounds, yeah, they never closed. And not that my parents ever taught me to have a chip on my shoulder, but they did um, teach me to recognize um, injustice when it was there. And I can, 
sorry, this is a ram, totally a tangent, but I was thinking about how how innocuous um, our biases can seem sometimes. Um, Definitely. I remember the first time that I actually ever felt, that I was ever really knew firsthand that people thought, that people held an idea that black people are bad in some, some way, like just inherently bad. And I was in, I think, seventh grade. I was on the playground. I had just started going to a very, very rich private school. Oh, yeah, I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, originally. Um, wow. I don't know if I said that before. You did um, not, but, and I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, um, so I grew up on the north side of town, which is where black folks live, still do. Um, and I think everybody now knows about, you know, that massacre in 1921. Um, and Tulsa has still, still lives along those segregated lines. Um, but I started going to this white middle school, predominantly white middle school, um, on the south side of town. And the disconnect was very apparent <laughs> there. Um, and but this little girl, I won't say her name, but um, I do remember her name, first and last. I'll never, will never forget this girl's name. Um, but she was telling a story about a um, a serviceman, like a cable company person or something, coming to the house, and she and her sister were home alone, and her parents were like, "Oh, this guy's going to come, and he just needs to get access to whatever." box that's in the, you know, electric box or whatever in the backyard, and he came to the door just to let her know he was, he was there, and she, she talked about how scary he was. She may have mentioned that he was black early on, but it didn't register because I don't think of black men as scary, right? Um, and I was like, well, what's the problem? Um, but did he not have a uniform on? Yeah, he did. Did he not show up in a marked truck? Yeah, yeah, he did. And I just wasn't understanding why she was so just terrified. She talked about hiding behind stuff in her house. She and her sister was so scared. Why? And she goes, because, him, you can never trust blacks. Uh. And I, that hit me like a ton of bricks. I just remember being like, I, I remember kind of yelling, but not, I don't remember what I said. You know, you're a hormonal teenager. Um, but I, I, I remember just being shocked that anybody would think that. And, and then my friends that were there kind of rallied around her and were like, stop yelling at her. She's not talking about you. And I was like, that's, yes, she is. <laughs> you know? And, and I went home and talked to my parents about it. And, um, they I remember them not being surprised that I'd had this interaction. Um, but I do remember them saying, um, well, we knew you were going to come across this at some point. So let's sit down and talk about it. Wow. And I was never really friends with her again. And that's something my parents talked about, too, because I was like, I don't even, how can I be friends with this person? She apologized to me, and my our mutual friends were mad at me for not, like, forgiving her and just, like, moving on. I'm like, how can I, what, how, what, how do I even yeah. do that? You know, um, but the expectation was that it wasn't a big deal and that I should just get over it. <laughs> and and that's, that's a microcosm of how people try to tell today, you know, get Absolutely. over it. Okay. They apologize, get over it. And just like, yeah. you know, that was probably a disingenuous apology. So is today's. Yeah. I mean, she felt bad. I think she did feel bad because she realized that she made me feel bad, but I don't think she realized why, why? it made me feel bad. <laughs> and, you know, and I didn't have all the words to articulate it at the time, you know, I was 13. I'm yeah. How could you? Out stuff. 
Um, but I knew that it was wrong, and I knew that I didn't want to be friends with somebody like that. Um, but I, I think it started an entire, um, an entire, how I kind of moved through the rest of my life in that I realized that somebody could know me and be friends with me and still hold these racist ideals or these, these stereotypes true, regardless of what they thought of me. And, um, but they would put me in a different category. You know, I would, I would get othered. You know, I was better than them because, better than other black people because, you know, I have a college degree or, you know, I speak a certain way or I dress a certain way. And back when I used to straighten my hair and, um, yeah. And, uh, you, you kind of, I used to wear it kind of like a badge of honor. Oh, they see me as different. So like maybe they're going to change their mind. And it wasn't that they were changing their mind about black people. They just changed their minds about me. And, um, that's not good enough. You know, at some point in my life was like, that's, nope, that's unacceptable. Um, I do think that personal relationships with people that are different than you help change your ideals. Absolutely. But I still think that there's a problem with viewing a certain group of people a certain way, <laughs> you know, in a, in a negative way, um, I should say. Um, um, yeah, it's a, and we need to fix that. Like, we need to fix, you know, teaching our kids, oh, you can you can be study partners with this black kid from your school, but they can't come to you, our house. Or you can't go to their house. Or you can't go to prom with them. Or you can't go to homecoming with them. Of some idea that you have about what their people, those people are like. You know? um, and that's the stuff that still goes down. You know, oh, I, definitely. I mentor, I mentor some... Um, a group of black girls at a predominantly white um, private school here. Um, there's like six of them in the whole school. <laughs> um, but, you know, the issues that they deal with, there's the same shit that I went through and the same shit my parents went through. You know, it's um, we're not actually fixing the problem. You just pretend like it's not there, you know. Yeah, or we do. feel justified in whatever the thing is, um, they find new ways to justify whatever um, or to make it something seem not so bad. You know, we want to honor Confederate soldiers because they fought for what they believed in. Or Confederate generals like, um, but what they believed in is that they should have the right to own people. So, no, let's not honor them. You know, um, that's not something to, to be elevated on a pedestal. That's not a person to be elevated on a pedestal. That's not um, a positive things you honor um and yeah on that note yeah tear all the statues down i don't care yes it have been put up in the first place it's yeah. insane that they're the still up <laughs> yeah no right. much needed and i know that story from middle school was not easy to tell and it, you know it was really hard to listen to but necessary so i just want to honor that you went there and and Thank told you. such a painful memory and uh, I was thinking when you were telling me, and I was just, I knew where it was going, and uh, just like with the the videos of the murders of black people in the streets by police, and and even the the violence from the against protesters and stuff, it's our natural inclination, mine, in the comfort of my home or out on the farm, wherever I am, is to look away. You know, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see this man get killed. Like, I mean, you shouldn't. Like, right, right. No, I'm saying <laughs> I, choosing to not view it, you know, versus view it. Yeah. 
I don't mean like, yeah, of but, course I don't want to see it happen. I'm talking about, this is why we're listening to your story about middle mm-hmm. school. I'm watching the videos. You know, I, I, we're not looking away anymore. When I say we, I mean any, myself, yeah. my partner, really anyone in my sphere. Like, mm-hmm. you, people of color have to live this. Now, it's not videos on their phone. This is their life every day. Absolutely. And we don't have to deal with that. And when you were telling the story... And that's a place of privilege. When people say, well, privilege, well, you know, how, how do my privilege? Well, they don't, they don't, you can watch that video on your phone or not. You don't have to worry about it happening, leaving your house or in Brianna Taylor's case, in your own house. That said, uh, I experienced some prejudice because I was Jewish, anti-Semitism, but sure. I also grew up in an area where there was a decent sized Jewish community and we could, mm. you know, there was safety in numbers. And I, I sort right. of felt like if anything, I passed because I'm even in jail. It's like I passed because I was white, even though I was a Jew. And, and mm. I, I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't subjected to the level of vitriol and automatic judgment that a person of color is because you don't know just looking at me. You know, I'm a, right. I have white skin. So I think it's important for even people like myself who, you know, feel like we're on the righteous side of things we gotta we gotta like confront you mentioned before like sometimes we don't even realize we have the inherent biases and and i've learned that during the past couple of months that i have inherent biases even though i love black folk black culture and i'm here talking to you and i'm trying to do good works i still am sorting through my own biases and and this has been a reckoning for me too and and listening to you talk about your experience only uh emboldens that and and in essence extrapolates it in all these different directions for me to then unpack in the coming days and weeks so thank you for for keeping it so real you know (laughs) thank you and i will say too like it's i don't think anybody should necessarily feel bad because they didn't have biases i'm not saying that you said that but it's just it can be hard to confront those but the thing is they're just in society like this Society teaches us certain things about certain people. You know, it's like, look at the images of, like, Latinx people that we are given. You know, and that's why people, you know, expect that, oh, if you're brown and look a certain way, oh, you're going to have an accent. Your parents, you know, probably came over here in an illegal way, but that's the images that you're given. You know, one of the, you mentioned Soul Train. One of the reasons that, um, the main reason Don Cornelius started that, I don't know if you've seen this, if you haven't seen the Soul Train documentary, find it. It's kind of hard to find, but it's really good. Um, he, being from Chicago, was seeing that um, there were all these negative images of black people in the media. It was always just like, violence and gangs and people getting sprayed by water hoses and it was, it was all very negative, so his goal was to put positive images of black people on TV, and he started it locally, and it became this huge thing that we all know now. Um, but it was a very deliberate thing that he was doing. Um, uh, Barry Gordy kind of had a similar idea with Motown. Um, he wanted to make black music be able to cross over, because especially at that time, the radio play was very, very separate, very, very segregated. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's we have to recognize that yes, our our this, we have a lot of work to do <laughs> as a country because um, there's just some things that are just woven into the fabric of the nation, like how we move is came from a very dark place. Yes, you know, it's, um, 
and so yeah, all of us are going to have some stuff, some work that we need to do. Um, whether you have malintent or not, you know, I think everybody wants to say like, well, I don't mean to. Like, of course, yeah, I know, but you know, let's fix this still. <laughs> you know, like I, I know you're not trying to be racist. That girl was probably not trying to be racist to me on the playground, but it was. So let's yeah. address that and like and fix where that came from and like change your idea of that. You know, um, it is hard work. Wrong with that. It is, and that's the problem. Is like, yeah, there are people that there will be people that don't want to do the work. That's that's going to be the reality, you know. Um, but there are lots of people that will want to do the work, and you know, we're seeing that. Like I was saying earlier, look for those silver linings because, especially on social media, it can be real hard to see the <laughs> see the positive. I've had to kind of put put down yeah. the phone. Have um, to. Because, you, you know, otherwise I just, I can just sit in rage, you know. And, and well. It's a double-edged rage, sword. Because if, if you didn't know, I mean, you know because you live it. But social media, for better or for worse, has given me an insight into just how dark and deeply woven these sure. prejudices are. Because in my little circle, whether it's Jazz Fest or Burning Man, I'm not seeing that. But on right. social media, I, I can't avoid it. So right. it's, it's a double-edged sword. And I agree. Sometimes you just got, like Badu says, put the phone down, you know, yeah. but. And, and not because you're trying to be ignorant, but just like. Yeah, you for your to, own sanity. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with that. Everybody, no. <laughs> everybody should take a break, you know. And um, for people like sanity, us, it's, it, it's, it's also the, our career, you know, you have to promote what you do uh, yep. to people that way, as do I. So we don't really have the luxury of like totally turning off. Uh, right. In our line of work and or our passions, etc. How are you doing on time? I want. I didn't want to take for granted. I'm, okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. Okay. I got like two more questions. If, okay. If you sure, have yeah. Yeah. Time. Sorry, I'm, we've derailed all of your other no. questions. No. Go ahead. No. No. <laughs> this has been even better than I hoped. Seriously, I was okay. going to just let it Good. fly and see where it went. And you're fantastic and really breaking it down for us uh, in a way that we can all really grasp and understand and and hopefully hold on to. You mentioned, uh, I saw you post a few weeks back, just, I'm exhausted. And you've said it a couple times <laughs> on this, on this podcast and also use the term microaggression a couple times. Mm-hmm. And that's something that like my own inherent biases that I've also just kind of begun to confront and understand, not just within, but exterior around me uh, for the folks that are maybe less initiated. What are microaggressions? And, and if you're, inclined to do so, maybe share some that you encounter regularly or whatever. Absolutely. Um, So microaggressions are, um, I I guess, statements or behaviors directed towards somebody um, that has, that are negative based on, um, again, these inherent biases, these uh, racial, you know, aggressions based in white supremacy that cause people to say something negative towards you, but not necessarily blatantly racist or threatening or um, physically harmful, right? So, for example, one of the things that I personally, um, uh, I would say commonly, <laughs> um, am referred to as, as articulate, or uh, they will say, you're so well-spoken. Um, and my parents get that as well. And that is a microaggression because the assumption is that I wouldn't be. And 
people don't even realize why they would say that. But um, and I will say that I, yeah, I've worked really hard to have a good vocabulary and be able to form coherent sentences. <laughs> but also, you shouldn't be surprised because I'm black, and that's really what it, it's based in. Um, or um, you know, being in an interracial relationship. I, I mentioned to my husband once that um, he should, when people are surprised that we're dating, um, when we were dating, they notice how many people ask you how your parents feel and that they never ask me about mm. that, how my parents feel about the relationship. And he was like, nah. And then it, you know, it happened a few times. Like, oh, that's weird. They never do. Because the assumption is that he was dating down and I was dating up. My right. parents would be elated, right? And his parents would have a problem with it, you know, um, which it never was, I will say. My in-laws are probably the most perfect in-laws ever. <laughs> they are amazing people whom I love very, very much. Um, um, it was never an issue, but it wouldn't be because they're, again, they're just awesome people. But, um, or um, people assuming, like, Oh, you were probably really, really fast when you ran. I ran track back in high school. Uh, you were probably really fast, you know. And not even that seems positive, but it's like, why would you think that? And actually, I wasn't very fast, so, <laughs> so no. Actually, um, yeah, that's that's the that's another one. Um, just assuming that people are a certain way. I, I, oh, and another personal one. I, a friend gave me a ride home from. <laughs> from a, from practice once, and he was like, "Oh, just so you know, like I don't listen to rap music in my car." I was like, "Oh, all right, cool." Yikes! Like, like, like I kind of was just like, "I don't." Have you seen me wearing like Bone Thugs and Harmony shirts? <laughs> like, it, was so, it was just so out of the blue. Like, I don't right. know why you would say that because it, it wasn't a kid who didn't know me. Like, you know, it was just like. I mean, cool. Yeah, you listen to what I... Yeah, but the assumption was, like, maybe secretly at home, I'm just, like, you know, bumping gangster rap, whatever. It's like, okay, you you really held that belief. That's unfortunate, dude. Um, the other one I used to get all the time is that I was very pretty for a black girl, which I think most black women would be able to say <laughs> they've experienced, um, which is particularly cruel. Yes. Um, you know, the assumption that black women can't be pretty or beautiful is that. But I mean, and that's, that is just a, a very strongly held belief um, in general. I mean, Psychology Today published some pseudoscience. And Psychology Today is like a reputable scientific magazine. <laughs> um, and they, a few years ago, published some pseudoscientific thing from this, uh, this quote-unquote scientist who had research to back up his claim that black women are the least attractive people on the planet. And he broke it down. Even, like, black men were considered, in his thing, more attractive. And we were wow. the lowest. Black women were the lowest. And people kind of, like, took it as face value. And the fact that, like, it didn't... I think a lot of people... well. A lot of black women noticed that article, <laughs> but it didn't really register to a lot of other people. That's so, infuriating. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Um, um, and, yeah, that he felt like he had uh, legitimate research to back it up. And I, 
to their credit, Psychology Today retracted the article and apologized. Um, but the fact that it would get published... Yes, in the way, first place. <laughs> just like that... That that's yeah. you just went like micro, micro, uh, larger, and then that's kind of macro. You know the the yeah, that the last macro. one is, is is there's no excusing your way around that. You know, right. like but if, but if you but it's like born of this theory right. that like oh well, black women aren't usually that attractive, which is to me I've never understood that anyway. Like I can't I don't understand beauty is in the eye of the people. beholder, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. I mean, how do you go like? Oh, all redheads are ugly. Like, just it's nonsense. Like, it's just, yeah. like, it's, like how I don't. That never made sense to me anyway. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. That that I will say that that's probably the biggest microaggression I've ever experienced. Is that like, oh, you're pretty for a black girl, or what is that last guy? Right before Mike and I started dating, a guy. No bar, rap music. <laughs> no, the no, guy in a bar was like, oh, like black chicks, you're hot. I was like, oh, okay. Yikes. I'm going to walk away before I punch you in the face. Seriously. Um, but, yeah, so those are microaggressions. And, again, you sometimes you think that you are giving somebody a compliment, but it's rooted in, you know, some racist ideals that may not – that are kind of watered down. I would say that that's um, the best way to describe uh, microaggression. And, and to the exhausted point, those are the things that make us tired because we have to – I have to gloss over that stuff in uh, some way almost yeah. every day, you know. And you know, my my husband once um, was like, "Oh, you never told me this thing," you know. And, I, and like, if I told you every single thing that happened, we wouldn't like, talk about anything else, getting, right? You know. And sometimes you just gotta like, like I just need to get, I just need to exist today. Can I not be mad? <laughs> can, I, can I not yeah. educate you? Um, can I? Can I not? You know. And and it's because it is. It comes from places that you don't even realize it's going to come from. I mean, I teach, um, I teach voice lessons and I teach uh, piano lessons. And back when I first started, um, I lost a student that had um, studied with me because uh, that came to me because the first lesson he was all nervous, which is not uncommon for a voice lesson. Um, it's a very vulnerable thing. Um, but then at some point in the lesson, he's like, "I'm sorry, I'm just really nervous because like you don't." you don't look like a Kim Dawson and I just wasn't expecting you to look like that. So I'm just, I don't really don't Ooh. know how to, and then he never came back. And I was just like, Oh, cause you thought I was white. Cause my name is Kim Dawson. Mm. Okay, cool. Um, and I make that joke sometimes like my family looks white on paper, you know, Michael, Kathy, Kimberly and Amber, <laughs> it's, you know, um, and like, you know, our middle names aren't anything, you know, what people would stereotype as, like, ghetto or whatever. Um, even that term is, like, terrible. Um, but, yeah, it's it's now, you know, obviously social media has kind of wiped that anonymity away a little bit because um, you can look sure. me up and see what I right. look like, which is, which is good. But, um, but yeah, I, that's, I, I worry about that, you know, every time a new student comes to me. Like, are they going to be put off? And I make sure to not present myself as the stereotypical angry black woman. You know, I'm very, I talk up here, usually <laughs> when I meet people first, and everything's like very kindergarten teachery, <laughs> you know, because um, um, it takes just that little bit for, for people to switch over to their opinion. And then even in that, like, yeah, it's so it's, it's I'm, I'm walking on eggshells all the time to make sure people feel 
safe around me. Um, because the assumption is always that they're not. Or to make sure I'm disproving a stereotype, you know, um, which is tough. It's, it's really, yeah, it's exhausting. Um, yeah, I just want to, I just want to live. <laughs> yeah. Live my life like everybody else does. Um, this really has been a lot of work to do. Really enlightening for you to shine a light on just the microaggressions, the day to day, how you got to just like sort of shake it off and continue on with your day. Can I live? All that shit is, and it's not shit, but all that stuff, I should say, is, is really important for somebody like myself or a listener whose reality isn't being a person of color to understand that, it, you know, I was just remarking about, oh, well, you guys or people of color have to worry about their safety or dealing with police, but it's not even all that. It's just the day-to-day conversations with the people in your lives. And, and right. yeah, of course you're exhausted. Like, you know, I get frustrated on a phone call with a family member or something, you know, it's like you literally, it's like every, every interaction can, can have that element. And, and then it's up to you to work through it. And then we've created this climate where if you mention it or complain about it, or even acknowledge it, it's like, get over it. So yeah. fuck that. Yeah. Or you know? yeah, it's it, and that's that's the other exhausting. Part. It's like but, okay. No. I did have, yeah. When people say like, get over it. Like this is not a big deal. It's like oh my gosh. So even if I'm honest about you right, know, then then you get shot down. And you know, yes, it's it's all the small things that exist as as well as like institutional things like, um, you know, worrying about getting killed if you get pulled over for a traffic stop, which is also uh, a thing. And, but, and also the reality that you're going to be pulled over more than your white counterparts um, yep. usually. Um, you know, I, I don't know a black person that hasn't gotten a DWB, as we call it, which is right. driving while black. <laughs> yeah, I um, thought it was bad driving while dread, but, uh, you know, not even, <laughs> not even close. No, driving while black, D, DWB, it's a, yeah. it's a thing. Yeah, I'm, I know. I'm just. I used to get profiled when I had a big head of dreadlocks. You know. Well, of course. Yeah. But, I mean, but, but it's another level. Right? Yeah, the DWB yeah, yeah. is. You know, you can't cut that off. So. Nope. Exactly. You can't cut that off. You can't change the style. You can't. Yeah. And I yeah, want. I want to live in a world where you don't want to nor have to, and that's why we're exactly. fucking doing this. You know. Exactly. And 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 it's important. I think um, you're getting perspectives of a, a lot of different people because my experience is not necessarily every black woman's experience or every black person's experience um you know i've gone through things people haven't i haven't gone through things people have um so yeah remembering that we're not a monolith either right there's right. going to be different perspectives and that's okay um i'm just giving mine you know yeah it's important um, that we hear a variety of them all all authentic and reality so that you know we can just have better understanding we you know it, it's the only way I see is through understanding, you know? Right. So that, that's what this is about. And uh, just yeah. as a side note, you had said about the Psychology Today thing, and as somebody who's in the media and who takes journalism seriously and also, you know, comes from the old school newspaper magazine world where, like, you know, four people read your stuff before it flew. Like, mm-hmm. you, there's no, like, to their credit, they took it back. No, that should have never flown. It's unconscionable. Not just socially, right. but at journalism. Well, it it just boggles my mind that, that that happened. So, you know, kudos to you for being willing to acknowledge their retraction. But as a writer, a journalist, that's just infuriating. 
that that yeah but it's also not new no like (laughs) you're right i mean that's one example it's been done many ways and yeah it's um it's yeah it's it's an ongoing problem at at least at least they acknowledge it um yeah the goal is to have people not put ridiculousness like that out there (laughs) Um, and there even there's been it but it's still you can find it you can find the article yeah that that's just that and there was that full page ad in the nashville paper this week which was uh, similarly unconscionable that somebody got fired over i just it's crazy how stuff still gets through that there's the filters are not intact where like the hate speech even dressed up in science or religion still manages mm-hmm. to, to get out there and that sucks. And, you know, I'm working towards, you know, being a part of a type of journalism that, that doesn't allow for that kind of thing. And, but just like in any area, like you said, it goes, it's going, it's going on everywhere and we just have to kind of address it. It's happening in the media this week and like the music media with the okay player complex, there's a whole reckoning going on with women of color and positions yeah. of power. And, and it's been really, Again, enlightening to watch, and and it brings up a lot of deep-rooted stuff that I think people have just been ignoring for a long time. Uh, yeah, and I think to your point, like you have to be intentional, um, and and you know people like you are are doing that, and I appreciate it. Um, but yeah, we just have to be intentional with how we're moving. You know, I was talking to a promoter about, um, you know, he was saying I'm trying to be more inclusive, which is funny to me to like I need to be more inclusive of like women and people of color in an art with an art form that they are super present in. You know, it's just it's kinda of, again, but that that <laughs> that dissonance, like you remove the people and then like everybody can do this. Like but you can also include the people that <laughs> historically always made this music in your festivals and stuff. But I think that it's it's good that there's been like a we have this time now. Because mm-hmm. there's not the live shows in the way that they have been, and they're probably going to be very different in general mm-hmm. um, as, as we return to normalcy, whatever that new normal is going to be. But I think we have the opportunity to make it better than it was because it wasn't working for everybody, you know. Agreed. Um, and so, yeah. So now that we have this downtime, like, what can we do to make this music community, the music industry, better than it was before? Uh, more inclusive, more diverse, whatever you want to call it, uh, more respectful, <laughs> yeah. whatever term you want to give for, for it, um, this is the time that we have to do the sure work. That we, yep, make sure that we are doing the work so that when it, we get back to it, it looks the way that we that it needs to look. Um, and yeah, so I'm 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 grateful that you know you are making those moves. I'm grateful that even if it was it seemed. <laughs> crazy to think that we have to be intentional and being um, inclusive, but at least somebody's recognizing, hey, we need to make this change. I will I will take that. Sometimes you got to take the small victories. Yeah. <laughs> you just you just do. you got to take the small victories yeah. before we can make massive changes. So as long but, as the changes keep happening, and that's the other side of it. I think I don't want people to think that, like, hey, I read this book, or I listened to a podcast, or I watched this documentary, now my work is done. Right. Um, 400 years of oppression is not erased by your, you know, by you, a few weeks of protests or something. You know, sure. it's like there's, this is going to be an ongoing challenge. Um, we don't want people to forget it, you know, because like, you do. I mean, if you, if you think about like the Ferguson um, 
protests that were happening a few years ago, and it's like I was thinking about Philando Castile and um, the, the, his murder, and like that was people were so outraged about that. I mean, I was. That video was terrible, mm-hmm. and you know, but then we kind of forgot about it a few months later. Yep. You know, yeah, there were protests. Yeah, there was some uprising, but then it kind of like died down, and people moved on to the next thing. And that's what we have to make sure we don't let happen. Um, people just naturally are inclined to do that. And even in the beginning of this most recent awakening, uprising, and protests, I heard from a lot of, you know, people, mostly white folks, you know, well, yeah, but in a few weeks, everyone's going to be back. There's going to be a new thing. And, and I don't want that to happen either. And I also wanted to stop short. Don't give me any attaboys for, like, doing this. <laughs> Okay, I, it's like Chris Rock said, like, you don't get uh, props for taking care of your kids. That's what you're right, supposed right. to do. So, like, I, you know, I, 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 this is overdue, and I'm not, I, I don't deserve props, but I just wanted to, to clarify. I'm just saying I'm trying to do the work, and I'm trying to inspire other people to do it, because I don't want to go back to the way it was, precisely for all the reasons you explained and millions more that I don't even know about. So mm. I, I wanted to just, you know, state that, you know, this is not easy for you or really anyone to get out there and, and talk about stuff when you know people's inclination is to say, get over it or apologized already or whatever it is. So thank you right. for, for confronting it uh, you know, and doing it in, I would say, not gentle, but in a way that uh, you're, not, you're not smacking people. You're just tapping us on the shoulder and saying, listen up. And I hope people <laughs> yeah, I, do listen. If, if I, I'm nothing if not honest. Yeah. Probably to a fault. I, I kind of am a, I'm a blunt person, I, I think I would say. And you know what? I'm all right with that. We need so that. Sometimes, sometimes you can't sugarcoat stuff, and sometimes you need to know that, you know, I mean, I think, especially as women, but especially as black women, we tend to kind of go, like, okay, I just want you to know, like, I care about you. First, I want to say this thing, and I'm like, no, nah, I'm just going to say the thing. Like, I don't need to make you feel good about what I'm about to say, because it's going to hit you, and it, maybe it's going to hit you hard. And maybe you'll feel bad. Okay, feel bad, do better. Like, just, you know, it's, it's, we don't have time to, I mean, I think I, it's, it's kind of frustrating because I'm seeing so much of that. Like, be patient with these people that are learning. Like, okay, cool. Some of us can be patient, some of us can't. I'm not in a patient space. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, you know. Now's um, not the time for that, no. no. Yeah. And, and, and really never was, but exactly. certainly not now. That's what it yeah, and I think people need to know that not everybody's going to be patient with your journey necessarily. And not that I'm saying I need to be insensitive, but I think people need to know that, like, there are those of us that have been dealing with things for a long time. <laughs> and so for you to, like, now be coming around to it and then be saying, like, oh, be nice, I just learned how to not be racist. It's like, <laughs> well, cool, but I don't have time to, like, baby you right now. Like, it's it's right. There's, let's, let's do the work, you know. Um, um, I promise I'm, like, super nice to my students. I mean, I learned that one, too. <laughs> I know, I know yeah. you're super nice, but, I mean, I learned that one, too, about, like, you know, in that post with Chris Royal where it was just like, look, I'm not going to tell you what to do, dude. You know, it's like, you're right. It's not up to people of color to tell us. You've been singing about it, writing about it, talking to us about it as long as we've known you and going back generations. So now, just because in our journey we're waking up, like, you're right. It's not up to you to hold our hand through it. And, and I think that's an important component. 
is is like yeah. that we need yeah. to t- do the work amongst ourselves you know Absolutely. not non peoples of color so that we can you know meet you there instead of you, you yeah. know, holding our hand if you will and again there will be some people that are like that might be more hand holders than i am that's cool yeah. if you need your hand held you find those people <laughs> right at this moment in time i am not the one um, well, this I, is this I will, is I will even better. <laughs> yeah, this is even better. This has been, like I said, enlightening and really potent. And you referenced a couple times your partnership, your marriage with Mike, Mike Tallman, mm-hmm. Ad Noise Studios. I had the privilege. We've talked about the poster on the last episode. Uh, the help from my friends poster is a privilege and a pleasure to work with him on that. And of course, uh, as an aside, we talked about you a time or two and also him coming on the pod. Now you'd referenced, uh, you know, the in-laws question as sort of uh, something that you've had to deal with. I, I, I wanted to ask in general about intermarriage, but you've already given so much, so... I just wanted to give you an opportunity to, to if, is there anything else you'd like to share about, you know, the black American experience being in an intermarriage that maybe I might be, or a listener might be, you know, not unaware of or should know about? Um, I think, I think a lot can change depending on where you live. Um, in Colorado, we kind of live in this, uh, <laughs> I always kind of call Colorado the, the, the place that pretends like they don't have any problems. Um, you know, I think Colorado touts itself as, or at least Denver touts itself as being more progressive than it really is. I mean, we're just now trying to change the name of an area that's been named after a KKK member for like a really long time, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, who was a mayor uh, at one point in this town. Um, so, Yeah. Progressive ish, um, but I don't. You know, we don't necessarily. It's not like we get stares walking down the street. It happens from time to time, depending on what neighborhood we're in and what situation we're in. Um, definitely more in the mountains than anything. I would sure. say. Um, and it's usually just stares at me. It's, it's, it's weird. People. It's a different culture up there. It's like they don't. I, I had a friend that dated a guy that a, fr- a black friend who dated a guy that was from Telluride and she would go visit his family and people were always like, oh my gosh, where did you find her? Like, oh. where did you find her? Like, black people exist, yo. Um, but, um, <laughs> she told me, like, that's what they would say, where did you find her? Like, it's so funny. And I even, um, I was going, I was traveling, I can't remember where we were playing, but I was going to be playing with my husband's band and I had just done uh, a couple gigs in Jordan with an acapella group that I used to be a part of. And uh, we stopped at a coffee shop, and I was showing one of the bandmates, I was like, I still had some uh, Jordanian money in my purse. And I was like, oh, hey, check this out. Like, this is what Jordanian money looks like. And this older white lady comes up to me, and she was like, so where are you from? And I said, uh, Denver? (laughs) And she's like, oh, I just saw funny money, so I knew you probably weren't from around here. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's Jordanian money. I just got back from there. And, again, I'm speaking to her like I'm speaking to you now. And um, after all the explanation, at the end of the conversation, she's like, well, welcome to America. I hope you have a good time here. And I was like, what the? Yeah. Lady, I'm from here. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Um, but, um, but, yeah, it's, it's, I think I still get – I. I think I still get singled out more so than like we get singled out as an interracial couple. But I do think there's been some normalizing of interracial couples just in general. I think that there's 
you know, they're more common than they used to be, um, or at least outwardly used to be. But, you know, the, it was only 50, 53 years ago that it was legal for me to be married in my, to my husband in um, every state. The Loving versus Virginia. Right. 1967. Or, Recently yeah. celebrated the anniversary of that. I remember you posted right, about it. Yeah. Too. I didn't do that math route. Right. But, you know, but yeah, so it's like, it's, that's, I mean, that is younger than both my parents. Right. Um, it, it, JFK has been dead longer than that law has been <laughs> um, legal. You know, it's, if you think about it in that perspective, like, it's not that long ago. And so people are still, people are still coming around to the fact that this isn't weird. You know, um, the one thing that I do think about is we have nieces and nephews, and um, their parents are all, again, just like my, my in-laws are awesome um, all around the board. My sister and brother are awesome. Their their husbands and wives are awesome. And I love my little nieces and nephews, but my oldest nephew um, is in elementary school now, and I they live in Florida, and I know that at some point, you know, he's going to show a picture of Uncle Mike and Aunt Kim, and people are going to be like, why is Aunt Kim black? You know, um, all of them are going to have that experience that they notice somebody is going to make that, make them notice right. the difference. You know, right now I'm just Aunt Kim, and that's how the family treat me, which is great. But I know that, it, and it kind of makes me sad to know that there's, I don't want them to get made fun of. I don't want them to experience any hardship because of me. Um, Sorry, I just got emotional. <laughs> but I also don't want them to see me as different in a bad way, you know. Um, yeah. Not that they do at all. Like, my, I have great relationships with all of them. But, um, but yeah, I kind of, in the back of my mind, I'm always like, oh, man, is that going to happen? And not because of anything their parents do, but just because of the world, you know. Yeah. Um, so we have to, we have an obligation to make this better. Um, to make to make sure that they don't grow up in a world where they will be forced to recognize their aunt as like different and that it's weird that their uncle's married to a, a black woman or anything you know I don't want to be assumed to be their nanny when they're <laughs> when they're um, out with me or that like I'm just some random black lady that is trying to play with these little white kids you know yeah, because um, it that is a reality, you know. Um, we were on the playground um, once, and I, I got a look from this lady that because my nephew kind of ran over to me, and she was kind of like, "What?" And then, but he said Aunt Kim, and so I think she kind of was like, "Oh," but then she still had this like weird look on her face and didn't under like she didn't understand like how could this be? Yeah, lady, people have been marrying people of different races for a long time now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's, for me, that's the biggest thing, um, being part of this yeah. relationship um, that I worry about. Um, it's, it's more for them, and I want the world to be better for them, and, I, and, I, and that's just it. Um, I don't worry about me. I can handle whatever ignorance somebody's views at me, but... Um, yeah, I want them to not have to see that as weird mm. or bad in any way. Yeah. Well, yeah, again, I said it a few times already, but really 
appreciate and, and honor your taking it there. So personal, so raw and real. And you're right. It starts with the children. We got to better ourselves so that they can grow up in a world that's different than what you had to experience. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I think that's a really powerful uh, place for us to kind of wrap this up. There's so much music. Sure. I want to talk with you. There's so many. Uh, <laughs> we can do another. We will. We oh, can do another. <laughs> please believe we will hopefully in person. Cause that's how I generally yeah. like to do these. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm so just thrilled and honored that you, you know, we're willing to not just speak with me, but you know, give me a hundred minutes of just your truth. So thank you. Deep bow. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And please uh, give a hug and a pound to Mike and let him know, you know, we got him on the docket. Come on soon. I want to hear his side of the story, his experiences too. He's out there doing the good work and living it. And uh, we appreciate and love and respect Mike Tallman as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I'll keep him. Yeah. <laughs> you picked the winner. And so did I he. Did. And so I did, did he. Yeah. Yeah, you know? I like that. I like that. <laughs> right on. Well, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week, and uh, I'll let you know when this is going to make its way out to the uh, interwebs. Awesome. I can't wait. Right on, Kim. Have a great week. Yes, indeedy. I want to say thank you and offer a deep bow to Ms. Kim Dawson for that thoughtful and insightful, enlightening conversation. You can check her out at Color Red Music, Vintage League Music, of course, KimDawsonMusic.com. And we really appreciate her opening up and hope everyone was able to get some really, you know, important messages and you know, some things to unpack after listening to that conversation. Cause it's definitely heavy, but beautiful, hopeful, and really grateful that she was able to make time for the Upful Life podcast. And check out her performance on Justice Comes Alive, which was put on by Live for Live Music. It was a fantastic event to raise money for Plus One Black Lives and incredible conversations on that program interviews intergenerational dialogues just check that out justice comes alive it's still showing on justicecomesalive.com and i'm sure they'll be rolling out the the footage and material from that event in the coming weeks with live for life music so kudos to kunjan sarah and andrew and the team gideon you know, Live for Live Music is fam, and Kim, just wonderful performance of Try and a Nina Simone cover. So with that, we'll get into the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. Suggestions, comments, you know, constructive criticism for this show, please hit me up at b.getz at upfullife.com. That's b.getz at upfull, U-P-F-U-L-L-I-F-E.com. You can also leave a review or rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. That's huge. So we appreciate that. 
And to wrap it up, Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week, you heard Kim and I talk a little bit about, or I referenced it, uh, and she, of course, is a fan of Jill Scott. And I was privileged to see Jill Scott perform way back in the day at this Tuesday night residency called Black Lily at the Five Spot in Philly. Between like two, 2000 and 2005 is when it went down. I showed up around 02. The performance I'm going to play is actually not from Black Lily, though I tried. Couldn't find any of Jill there, but I did find this just, I mean, I've heard it a thousand times and I've been wanting to play it. And now it's the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. It's, you know, she wrote You Got Me with the roots and then the mca records ended up putting erica on the track they talked about that on the badu jill scott verses but it's it's long been known that uh that's originally a jill scott roots collab nonetheless when they did the mtv two dollar bill show back in 2002 right around the time the roots released phrenology um they had jill out to do a version of you got me and it is next level it's a different arrangement of the tune it's like gothic like deep dark foreboding ethereal take her vocal is otherworldly and and of course the roots rise to the occasion so i'm going to play that it's decent sound quality not a plus but then again neither was the interview so might as well stay consistent right but the music shines through it's still a great recording uh ripped it off of youtube um, I haven't been able to find like a soundboard of this or anything, although I'm sure it exists because it was a television program. But I digress. We're going to sign off for the Up for Life podcast. I will not make you wait another five weeks for the next one. You have my word. The goal is three, maybe less. But we're going to settle into a groove and stick with it. With that, sayonara. Deep bow of gratitude to everyone who tunes in. You are love. This is the Up For Life Podcast, episode 34, signing off. B gets wubba wubba wubba. Goodbye. God bless. Yes, indeedy.
to take my time If I search I will find I'm going to take this pace When I use my mind I win the race I'm gonna take my time Gonna take it slowly to make sure that you Let's get the devil's thing out like I went home and forgot time passed We can feel it now she up in my spot saying the things I'm telling her was making a hot party Fill it with her constantly around the clock Now she's in my world like hip-hop and she's telling me, telling me, telling me Catching a flight and sometimes I got to pee out after Hide on the night of master She couldn't get a summer Know that ain't right It's like I'm, I'm on the side of you And love with your mind I know ya Gotta get that paper data Keep that paper show up I need some love in my life Now you see me I was talking to my sister From Washington, D.C. She said she know this ball player He trying to see me Side 
I'm playing boo, you know it's just what you want Staying boo, and when fuck on this bobbing I don't hear what they saying, boo When you're out in the world, no more I'm still your girl on my classes, you got the time But life's thrills when you're sweating on stage Think of me when you rhyme, oh, uh, 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 uh But I can trust her, she's saying I'm her king for real But yo, y'all know the roots be rolling with chill She still I'm a celebrity, I deal with the feeling If it's artificial, let it be I, I've seen people caught in love like whirlwinds Listening to the squad, fucking with girlfriends That's exactly the spot where they whole world is Lives come in, that's where the drama begins And she like, 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 she like